Musicians, this sounds great this morning. It's great to have you playing. Thank you so much for leading us. Uh, well, welcome, let me add my welcome. My name is Paul Rees, and I serve as the lead pastor here. And uh, it'll really help you if, you if you don't have a Bible to have a Bible. And so if you didn't get one earlier, please put your hand up, and uh, hopefully some stewards will bring you one if you don't have one. And you might want to open up to Isaiah chapter uh, 52, page 741 in the Church Bibles. How will the greatest problems of our society and our world be fixed? The answer of Christianity is this. Through Jesus Christ, who was killed by crucifixion and three days later rose from the dead. This is so central that the recognized logo of the Christian church is a cross. Now, the first century AD was as obsessed as we are today in our society about sex, power, beauty, and charisma. But the Apostle Paul summarized his message in this way. We preach... Christ crucified. Now, if you are only just starting to investigate the Christian faith, this might seem the strangest and most unlikely solution you've ever heard of. How could this be the case? Who could believe such a message? But this is still the message that we need to preach today because this is God's solution to the deepest problems that we all face. And the answer, the solution, overturns all that we understand about achievement, power, wisdom, about what it means to be a winner. Donald Trump uh, yesterday mocked Hillary Clinton uh, as she struggled because a few weeks ago she struggled to walk 15 feet to her car uh, because she had pneumonia and he made fun of her because he thinks that to win the presidency of America uh, you need to mock weakness and be braggadocious about your stamina and your wealth because that's how the world wins that's how you get on in life strength not weakness wins the day. That's worldly wisdom. Tom Holland is an historian, an author, and TV presenter. And he wrote a piece earlier this month in the New Statesman magazine of how he first wrote off the importance of Christianity. Instead, he was drawn to the glamour of the Greek and Roman gods, preferring their ideology of egoism rather than biblical values. I'm going to put the quote up. Maybe it was too small for you to read there. Let me read it to you. He quotes the Apostle Paul's words. Uh, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And then he writes this. Nothing could have, been, uh, could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumptions of Paul's contemporaries, the Jews, the Greeks, or the Romans. 
The notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer themselves. You see, this message is so surprising. It was in the first century, it still is today, that God wanted to prepare us for it. He pre-announces it. He sketches out the career of a servant who will achieve glorious salvation, but it will be through humiliation and suffering. And he wants to teach us the wisdom of the cross. And so please have a look at Isaiah chapter 52 and verse, we're going to read from verses 13 uh, to the end of the servant song, the end of uh, chapter 53. And as I read this, bear in mind that this was written 700 years before Jesus walked on the stage of human history. 700 years before. See, my servants will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my servant, my righteous servant, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the Word of God. Now, I had originally planned to preach this in one sermon, but the more you study it, the more you realize that this really is the jewel in the crown of the book of Isaiah. This fourth servant song is so remarkable, describing as it does the person and work of Jesus Christ hundreds of years before he came, that I plan to spend five sermons looking at it. Now, if that sounds a bit too much to you, my Uncle Ronnie was visiting uh, a few weeks ago, and he told me about a great series of sermons by a Scottish Presbyterian preacher of the 17th century called James Durham, who preached 72 sermons on Isaiah 53. And so if you think five is not enough, can I encourage you to find a second-hand bookshop? And look for Mr. Durham's uh, sermons, which I'm sure will be very edifying because there's enough richness here to preach for at least a year and a half. But we're going to go and look at it over five weeks. Let's just show you a quick look at the structure of the, of the whole song. It is divided into five paragraphs. It is a classic example of Hebrew poetry. The first and closing paragraph kind of give the well, sort of the summarizing introduction, the beginning, and the conclusion at the end. And then you come in, the, the second section focuses on the life of the suffering servant, and the fourth on his death. And so at the very center, we have the third paragraph, which is the explanation and the meaning of his sacrifice. This is the heart of the whole servant's song. But this morning we're going to look at the introduction that we find in the last three verses of Isaiah chapter 52. And from the very first verse you see a command. See my servants. This is God's command to his people exiled in Babylon. They need to fix their attention on this servant. The first hearers of Isaiah's message were reaping the consequences of all their sinful choices as a nation. It led them to be a conquered people, a captured, exiled people, uh, with their homes destroyed behind them, their, their, their important religious building, the temple utterly destroyed. And there they are, off away in Babylon, a, a broken people. But God wants to say to them, it is not the end of the story. God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. He is a gracious God, even to those who have 
reap the consequences of their own sinful choices, have got themselves in this mess, and God wants to say to them, See, look at my servant. It is not over. Look, this is the center of what I'm going to do. Look to him. And to a world that is still so full of problems today, again, because of our sinful rebellion, this is the message of God. See my servants. If you get the Sunday papers, the weekend papers, it'll be full of magazine articles with features on individuals and the world is clamoring, look at me, look at me, look at this person, look at this star, look at this film, look at this achievement. And it's all, you know, it's okay, it's fine. But it's very distracting. It's not the main focus of history. We need to listen to what God has to say. See my servants. Look to him. I wonder if you've come to church today and, and you've come because you've realized that life is just not working for you. You've come to the end of yourself. You can see the decisions that you've made and they've cost you. They've not worked out. One of the women who uh, spoke to me at, at the doors open day, she quietly said to me as she left, she said, I'm in a wilderness. And perhaps you're here today and you're in a spiritual wilderness. You're feeling that you are exiled from God. You're separated from Him because of the, of the choices that you've made in your life. Well, I've got such great news for you today. See my servant. Look away from yourself. Look away from your mess and fix your eyes on Him. God wants you to see this morning the heights of his ministry in verse 13, the depths of his ministry in verse 14, and the breadth of his ministry in verse 15. That's the, the three things we're going to look at this morning. See this morning. First of all, verse 13. See the heights. Look at his complete Success. This servant, verse 13, will act wisely. He knows how to get things done. When you've got a problem you don't know how to fix, how wonderful it is to meet someone who says, I know how to fix that. Whether that's a broken toilet, gas boiler, a health problem, it's brilliant when you find the person who says, well, I've got the knowledge, I've got the expertise, I know how to fix that. Well, this servant has the knowledge and the ability to see a mission accomplished. He knows the right things to do so things will prosper. And there's a taster of, of this at the conclusion of this song. If you turn over to verse 11. By his knowledge, middle of the, of, the parag uh, middle of the sentence, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. At the root of all of humanity's 
greatest problems, they kind of boil down to our selfishness and our sin that separates us from God. But this servant will know what it takes for sinful men and women to be made right with God. He knows what it will take. We've seen earlier in Isaiah, as we've been walking through this from Isaiah chapter 40, how the servant himself describes, uh, well, how God describes that his servant will change things. God has described what the servant will do. He will restore a a sin-cursed world back to the Garden of Eden. We read in an earlier song. He'll restore justice to the nations. He's going to restore Israel back under the rule and blessing of God. And in fact, he's going to be a light to the Gentiles. It's not just going to be his own people. It's going to be all the nations of the world can come under this blessing of this servant. And, And God has no doubt that his servant would achieve these great things. He will act wisely. His life work will be a complete success. And my Christian friends, I don't know whether you're feeling weary and discouraged today, but I want to encourage you to look back to the cross and recall the last words of Jesus from the cross. It is finished. Mission accomplished. Salvation achieved. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. We're reconciled to God. We're forgiven. We're part of his family. We become part of the new creation that will one day change and restore and transform the whole world. Jesus Christ makes all things new. And there is a power at work in us to change and transform our lives. Addictions and sinful habits can be broken. Our brokenness can begin to heal. Anger and jealousy and bitterness can be transformed into love and peace and kindness because of His saving grace. The work of His Son will be a complete success. Do not be discouraged today. So confident is God the Father of the complete success of this mission that 700 years before he even began it and came, God says of him in verse 13, He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. The delight of the Father in the wise actions of the servant will be recognized as a source of heavenly praise and glory. He'll act wisely and he's going to be raised up, lifted up and highly exalted. And that statement just gives us an incredible clue as to the identity of this servant. There are only three other occasions in the book of Isaiah which describes uh, someone being highly exalted. And who's that? Each time it is the Lord God. For example, Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. And here, remarkably, is this human servant, born of a woman, and he's described as someone who's going to be raised and lifted up and highly exalted to the status of God himself. 
how Isaiah must have scratched his head to work out all that was being meant by this. And I think it's astonishing as we consider the the life of Christ and what happened to him that, as Alec Motier points out, it's impossible not to be reminded in these three words of what took place. His resurrection, he'll be raised up. His ascension, he'll be lifted up. And his heavenly exaltedness. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, in the times when when Life is looking gloomy and dark. We need to not only listen to the last words of Jesus on the cross, but we need to listen again to the praise of heaven that we can hear from Revelation chapter 5. And we hear the loud shouts of thousands upon thousands of angels. 10,000 times 10,000, it says, encircled around the throne where a lamb looks freshly slain and the... The angelic host declare in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This servant will be a complete success and highly exalted. Such heights for this servant's ministry. Such heights that we could never have conceived of the depths that would have preceded it. But we're asked in verse 14 to look at that. See the shocking cost. Verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. I think as Christians we forget how weird it is that people wear a golden cross around their neck or put a cross on top of a church building like is true of our spire. Nailing someone to a cross was one of the cruelest Ways in ancient times to cause a shameful, public, slow, painful, lingering death. And to make a torture death machine as your most recognizable logo is very odd. We get to hear from the servant back in Isaiah chapter 50 about what this suffering would mean for him. If you go back to chapter 50 uh, and uh, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. But here in the fourth servant song, we hear the voice of God the Father, as he speaks of the suffering of his own son. And it is a lot worse than we were led to believe. Verse 14 is so poignant. It is as if God the Father starts speaking at the response of the many who were appalled at him. And he meant to go on to talk about the many nations and be sprinkled. But it's as if there is a, 
a silence and almost a moment of distraction as the father could not forget the violence and brutality that would be inflicted on him and blurts out, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. His form marred beyond human likeness. By the time they were finished with him, he was barely recognizable as a human being. And I don't know whether you've ever seen a picture of someone who's been badly beaten around their face or whether you've been to visit someone with a, a head injury after the surgeons had a go at him. The facial swelling and the bruising can be so bad that you, they're barely recognizable. In fact, it's, it's almost painful to look at their face. And as we see the heights of the exaltation at the end, we can hardly believe it when we consider the depths of the suffering and the humiliation that preceded it. We read it in the New Testament, didn't we? We pass over the word so quickly, they flogged him. They stripped him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They took a staff and they kept beating his head. What did he look like at the end of all that? Before they nailed him hand and foot and lifted him high on a cross? His face was so disfigured. His likeness marred. There's a sense in which every brutal beating, every wicked act where uh, you hear these terrible stories of people throwing acid into the faces of people, every act of human torture is a witness to the sickness of our sinful nature. This is what we're capable of. That we as human beings would choose to deface a person made in the image of God, whoever that person is, show something of the utter depravity and problem that we have, that we should do this to the sinless, perfect Son of God, points to the total depravity of our human nature. This disfiguring of Jesus was done by people like us. But here, amazing love he set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing that it would be horribly disfigured and he did it for us. What love. See, the message of the, of the cross of Jesus Christ has always been appalling. It would have looked appalling. And so why is this the message that we preach because God has revealed that through the suffering of this servant, there is a stunning sacrifice that saves sinners. See, just as there were many who were appalled at him, verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. Now that word sprinkle, it comes from 
the practice of Jewish priests, in, and you can read about it in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, where the blood of animal sacrifices was applied uh, by the priests to, well, to their, the clothes of the priests, to the priests themselves, to make them holy, to consecrate them uh, in, in their service of God in the tabernacle. Or blood was sprinkled to purify and cleanse those who'd become unclean before God, those who couldn't enter the tabernacle, which symbolizes God's presence, because they were unclean. They could not come. And the shock here is that the blood of the sacrifice that sprinkles many nations, it's, it's not an animal. The animals could never have done it. They were pointing to this, the Lord's servant. It is his blood that sprinkles many nations. And look at the stunning breadth of his ministry. This sacrifice is not just for a few. It's for many nations. The nations were considered unclean and so not welcome into God's presence. They couldn't come to the tabernacle. And yet they are sprinkled clean because of this servant to enable them to become holy and welcomed by God. This is a stunning sacrifice of this servant that saves sinners from all nations. And my question this morning to you is, do you see this? Do you see this? See, God's command is see. Do you see it? God says, my servant acts wisely. And imagine just for a moment Christ on the cross in all his anger, in all his, his agony and, and, and the, the disfigurement and, and say, this is acting wisely? This is the wisdom of God? Yes. This is the wisdom of the cross. When you understand that our Problems are so deep, that sin is so terrible. When you understand the utter holiness of God and his total commitment to justice, then you can look at the disfigured face of Christ and say, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. He is paying the price for my sin. Do you see it? Do you understand the wisdom of the cross? It is knowledge that will shut the mouths of those who consider themselves worldly wise like kings and philosophers. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. Because when you see this, it does change absolutely everything. In truth, the wisdom of the cross has profoundly shaped our Western culture. Tom Holland in that article for the New Statesman says that after uh, doing more study as an historian, he saw the total cruelty of the societies that worshipped the Greek and Roman gods. And then he goes on to say how wrong he was to write off Christianity. 
Preaching Christ crucified has been totally revolutionary, he says. He states this. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in a post-Christian society take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. And that's great up to a point. But do you see that that response is not enough? This servant is highly exalted because he has accomplished and achieved salvation in his death upon the cross. But each of us needs to have the cross work of Christ applied to our lives. We need to be sprinkled by his blood. And it is not automatic. Each one of us, each one of you needs to come individually before this God and confess your sinfulness as you see his suffering. And turn back to God and ask that he applies the work of Christ on the cross to your life, that he sprinkles you with the saving benefits of his blood, that you would be forgiven, that you would be cleansed. Have you done that? Have you done that? I don't know, maybe this is new, maybe you've got questions. Well, think about, glad you asked. Christianity Explored, there's courses for you to investigate that. But if you know it's true and you've not done it, why don't you turn to trust Christ today? God has worked all history. God is working the story of your life, that you are here this very day, that you would be reminded of the high exaltation, the completed sacrifice of his son. And God is inviting you through me today to say you can be right with him. Will you come and be cleansed? Will you come and be forgiven? Will you come and take the benefits of this incredible, costly sacrifice for yourself and be thrilled and delighted that he has been raised and lifted up and highly exalted and you join the praises of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb. I see it. See, when you do see it, Suddenly, you kind of shut your mouth to all other boasts except the death of Christ. Everything else will become secondary in your life compared to this. It is this that gripped the Apostle Paul so much that he wanted to keep going to new nations so he can meet new people, so that they could become acceptable to God, that they could be cleansed by hearing and responding to the good news of the suffering and the glory of Christ. His humiliation and his exaltation and they could receive the benefits of it and they can join in the praise of heaven. And my friends, if we see this, we've got such good news to share. Who are we going to tell this week? Let's pray.
Father God, we come to you just so humbled as we consider the great cost of our salvation. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus willingly went to the cross to be our Savior. What a Savior. We thank you for him. And we want to echo the praises of heaven that he is worthy to be worshipped and honored and glorified and praised. Work in each of our hearts that we will be settled, that he will be central, that we'll be those who will preach Christ and him crucified. Lord, we long that this uh, lost world and this lost city which is distracted by so many things, would turn their gaze upon your lovely son. Send us out with confidence and thankfulness and peace. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen.